We continue our Advent series on the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Uh, This morning we will finish the actual genealogical portion of the text. Uh, Next Sunday morning we will consider uh, the announcement of the birth of Jesus in the rest of chapter 1. And then on Christmas Eve we'll consider uh, the beginning of chapter 2 and the visit of the wise men to the infant Jesus uh, from the east just to give you the breakdown of what we're going to do over the next two Sundays. But this morning, uh, we come to the last section of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. And I believe I shared it at the start, but I'll I'll say again, Matthew breaks his genealogy up into three sections. The first section uh, deals with uh, the descent of Jesus' line from Abraham to David, and then the second section from David to the exile. And this morning, we'll see Uh, the line of Jesus from the exile to the time of Christ when he came into the world. Uh, And as we do so, we see a trajectory. And what we see is that uh, by the time that his lineage comes down to Jesus himself coming into the world, uh, his dynasty has fallen on hard, hard times. Uh, If you want to imagine that Jesus, when he's born, he's kind of like uh, someone you may know who uh, maybe their great-great-grandfather was some very prominent American, very famous Um, But you look at their situation now, and it's very dire, and it's very sad, and they've fallen on hard times. They have a legacy of greatness, but that greatness did not come down to them today. Uh, That is very much where Jesus uh, came into the world in his lineage, in his dynasty. And we'll consider this morning how, as the son of Mary, our Savior, embraced shame, that we might have salvation. So let's look together and read from Matthew 1, verses 12. Uh, through 17. Let's give our attention now. Brothers, sisters, these are the very words of God. Matthew 1, verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eliezer begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God now add his blessing to our reading and hearing of his word this morning. It's an interesting thing to think of, being ashamed of Jesus. Why would you be ashamed of Jesus? For the last 2,000 years, arguably, he has been one of the most prominent figures in human history. And if you went up to your average American person on the street, and you talk to them about Jesus on some level, uh, they're likely to have a positive opinion. At least a positive feeling comes into our minds when we think about the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you read through the Gospels time and again, Jesus warns his disciples against being ashamed of him. He tells them, don't, don't be ashamed of me. In fact, at one point he warns them, anyone who is ashamed of me and my words Of him I will be ashamed of when I come with the glory of my Father and his angels. Why would there be this temptation 
to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. In many ways, it has everything to do with Christmas. It has everything to do with how God's Son chose willingly to come into the world. When Jesus comes into the world, as much as we might have nostalgic memory and fond thoughts of Christmas time, and it's very enjoyable, the seasonal aspect of it, the reality is that the message of Christmas is a message with the potential for shame, for dishonor. It's kind of a dirty message in many ways. It might shock you to hear that, but that's the reality that the Bible presents. We see it in the genealogy of Jesus. We have already seen how Jesus has ancestors and forefathers who are shameful men, ungodly men, sinners who, unlike David even, had no repentance, no faith in the living God. But now in this third section of the genealogy, Matthew is going to make crystal clear for us that when Jesus Christ comes into the world, he does so from a downcast dynasty. He is a son of David, uh, but in, in many ways today, uh, that's like uh, someone living out in the mountains with nothing to their name, no money, nothing going for them, but they happen to have George Washington as their great-great-grandfather, you might say, something, something in that line. When Jesus comes into the world, he comes into a downcast dynasty, and he comes in the lowest place of that dynasty. In many ways, if you looked at Matthew's genealogy, you see this rising and falling action in it. You start with Abraham, a man of great faith, but a man who did not inherit the promises that God made to him. And you have this rising action throughout uh, the genealogy towards King David, and then Solomon, the kingdom reaches its highest point, but then things start going awry and things get off track and the kings are rebellious against God. And we saw last week how it leads to the exile in Babylon. And then there's all these exiled kings and things are getting worse and worse, less and less honorable, more and more shameful, right down to the point where we come to this carpenter, a lowly carpenter named Joseph and his young fiance named Mary. The prophet Isaiah said of Jesus in his prophecy, chapter 53, verse 2, he spoke about how the Messiah shall grow up as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Out of ground that you would not expect the Messiah would come. And everything about the lineage and genealogy of Jesus speaks to this reality. He does not come from honorable, proud beginnings. He comes from a humble place, a humbled family, a, a downtrodden family in many ways. His ancestors, once regal and dignified, are now only a distant memory. In fact, by the point that Christ comes into the world, it has been hundreds of years, longer than our nation has been in existence. In fact, four times about as long as our nation has been in existence since Jesus' family had any prominence or honor to speak of. They've lost their glory. They've fallen on hard times, you might say. And the hard times have continued. And yet, God chooses to come into the world at that point in time. When God planned before the foundation of the world 
when the second person of the Trinity would come into the world and save sinners and be a sacrifice for them and come as a son of David, when he was planning this out before the foundations of the world, God decided, the Son and the Father and the Spirit decided, all right, when is the right time to go? Surely maybe it would be when, when Solomon is king, when the kingdom's at its greatest extent, when, when the family of David is at its most prosperous and most honored. Maybe even when David comes into the world or, or shortly after there, uh, maybe Jesus could come into the world and save the dynasty quickly from its shame. But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to come, you might say, at the worst possible circumstance, the worst possible time Jesus chose to come into the world. Friends, we learn from the coming of Jesus in this way. Don't despise. Don't despise God's power. Don't despise God's ability to bring something out of nothing. God created the world and all things out of nothing by the word of his power. And when God sent his son into the world to be a savior for sinners, he did not need worldly honor and worldly prestige to come into and do his mission. He came out of a disgraced lineage, a downcast people, and yet God's choice was to bring him out of that dry ground and grow him up as the Savior. Throughout his life, this theme would continue. It's not as if things got better after he came into the world for his family. His birth demonstrated his humility. His family was poor. If you did a contrast between <coughs> excuse me, Luke chapter 2, verse 24, and Leviticus 12, verse 8, you see that when his mother Mary goes to the temple to offer the sacrifice for her purification after childbirth, uh, moms in the Old Testament, when they had given birth to a child, they had to go make a sacrifice. And Mary goes and she makes the sacrifice that only the poorest in Israel were to make. Only the poorest mothers in Israel were able to come and offer only birds as their sacrifice. That's what Mary had to do. Joseph is a simple carpenter, Matthew 13, verse 55. He has uh, not much going for him, career-wise. Certainly steady work, but not honorable work, not high and mighty work. His conception, his virgin conception, was miraculous. We know that because we know the story. But you have to understand that from the perspective of everyone around Jesus, his conception and his birth was tainted. Even Joseph, we will see in next week's sermon, we'll see how Joseph, when he hears from Mary, his wife, or his, his betrothed, that she is pregnant and it's not his child, his first reaction as an honorable man is to say, I need to separate myself from this woman. I love her, so I'm not going to do it publicly. I don't want to expose her to ridicule and public shaming, but she has been unfaithful to me. It must be. And I've got to distance myself from her for the sake of my own honor. Throughout his life, no doubt, our Savior would hear the joking of others. Who's your real dad, Jesus? Who's your real father? We know it's not Joseph. John 8, 41, the Pharisees in talking with Jesus, uh, they get a little dig in on him. Uh, that Jesus is talking with them about how they are not true sons of Abraham. And, and he says, uh, the Pharisees say to him, uh, we know our father, we're not sons of fornication. 
You're getting in a little jab at Jesus. Jesus, you are a son of fornication. You're a bastard child. You're the bastard offspring of a loose woman who in her youth before her own wedding day was unfaithful to her betrothed, and you're the byproduct. You're the offspring of that arrangement. Very early on, uh, the Jews who did not believe in Jesus, who did not receive him as the Messiah, uh, created stories about uh, Roman soldiers impregnating Mary. And she had to come up with this excuse of an angelic visit to somehow uh, explain away the shame of what she had experienced. All throughout his life, Jesus had this shame hovering over his head. Nothing about his life looked honorable from the outside. The Catechism rightly speaks of the work of Jesus in two parts, and it calls the first part his humiliation. That's the way we ought to be thinking about Christmas. This is a part of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. He's exposed to shame. He's exposed to ridicule. Prophet Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Everything about the earthly life of Jesus and, and the, the first part of his ministry from his birth to his death, everything was cloaked with shame. It's no wonder then that Jesus could say to his disciples, don't be ashamed of me. There's ample cause to be ashamed, at least from man's perspective, from a worldly perspective. Why did it have to be this way? Why couldn't he come some other way? Why did he have to be born in a stable and not in a palace? Why did he have to be born to a poor peasant family instead of a royal dignified family? Why does he have to live his life with plenty of worldly reasons for shame and ridicule instead of being an honorable, upstanding Jewish man? Why does it have to be this way? It has to be this way because of the unique mission that Jesus came to do. Jesus has to experience this because that's what our sin deserved. Jesus has to experience this humiliation because that humiliation is what you and I deserved for our sins. And in every aspect of his life and ministry, Jesus has to take our shame and our sin, and our disgrace on himself. He said in Mark 10, verse 45, speaking of himself as the king who came into the world, the royal son of David, God incarnate. And he said that when God came into the world, he came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. You think about all the times in the Gospels when Jesus does something and his disciples are embarrassed for him. Unpure, impure, sexually immoral women coming to him, crying on his feet, anointing his feet with oil. And what are the bystanders saying about him? Man, if he knew what kind of woman that was, surely he wouldn't receive her. Little babies being brought to him by their mothers and fathers. And the disciples go, hey, don't you understand he's a little more important 
than that? Don't you understand this man is too important and dignified to hold your snot-covered little sniveling child? And, and Jesus rebukes him. No, no, no. This is not beneath me. I am not above holding your little baby. Blessing that little child. You think maybe of perhaps the most outlandish thing Jesus ever did. The thing that uh, Peter was nearly ready to go to blows with him about. John chapter 13. The night before he's crucified. Dying a shameful sinner's death. What does he choose to do? He washes his disciples' feet. Do you remember Peter's response to that? When Jesus, the King of glory, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of David, he puts a towel, he takes off his nice clothes, and the Bible says he girds himself with a towel, and he starts going around the room, around the table, and washing the feet of his disciples. What was Peter's response to that? Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. What are you doing, Jesus? This, this is backwards from start to finish. I should be washing your feet. It's like John the Baptist said about him. Don't you know you should be baptizing me? Peter, with, with his master on his knees in front of him, the king of glory, God incarnate, bending down in front of Peter to wash his dirty feet. And Peter says, Lord, get up. Stop doing this. We're trying to defend your honor here and you're making it really difficult. Have some decency. Have some decorum. Don't you have any shame, Jesus? What did Jesus say? If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. If you don't let me serve you, you cannot be my disciple. This is one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel, Christian. When God decided to come into the world, it was not to receive service from you. It was to give service to you. He did not come to receive something, but to give you something. Our rebellion against God brought us into the shame of sin. Prophet Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 25. He says, we lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. You know that feeling when you've had a bad day? Maybe you've done something really heinous. Maybe something no one even knows about. Some sin that no one but you and the Lord is aware of. And you lie down to go to sleep at night. And you're just covered with that sensation of regret. God, I hope no one else finds out about that. God, I hope no one else saw me do that, heard me say that. Your reproach is covering you like a blanket in your bed. That's the reality of our sin. That's what sin brought on us. 
One of the greatest mistakes that modern man makes is we want to escape the shame of sin without actually being freed from sin itself. This is why you have so many people in the, in the psychological world, the psychoanalytical world, where it, it's all about escaping from the sensation of guilt. How do I get rid of my guilty feeling? How do I get rid of my sense of shame? Right? I grew up with a, with a Catholic mother. I grew up with a Jewish mother. And all I feel is shame all the time for the things I've done. I feel guilty all the time about the things I've done. And the, the initial response is to say, how do we get rid of those feelings? And God says, don't try to get rid of the feelings. Try to get rid of the source. Jesus came to free us from our sins. And in order to do that, he had to take the shame of our sin on himself. He had to take the consequences that we deserved on himself. He had to put off his glory and take on our shame. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 puts it this way. Let me not do it from memory lest I misquote God's word. Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8 talks about Jesus. And it says he made himself of no reputation. God made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? No honor. No dignity. Nothing from the outside that looks noble and glorious and good. He made himself of no reputation. What did he take instead? He took the form of a bondservant. That's a polite New King James way of saying a slave. He took on the form of a slave and he came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. From start to finish, from his birth to his death, everything about Jesus' earthly ministry and life is covered in humility, covered in shame because he's taking your shame away from you, Christian. He's taking the shame of your sin off of your back and he's putting it on his back and in return that glory that he put off he is giving to you freely that's the great transaction of the gospel his glorious coat of, of honor and and eternal majesty he takes off he comes down he takes your shame on himself and he gives you his glory instead If I had fallen into a muddy pit, as I might on a day like today, it's awfully wet outside. If I had fallen into a muddy pit, or if my car was to get stranded on, on the road going home from church this morning, and you were to be driving by and you said, man, oh, there's Pastor Keith, and he's out in the rain and in the muck trying to change his tire, trying to fix his engine, whatever the case may be, and you say, I want to help him. There's no way for you to help me apart from getting wet yourself. There's no way for you to help me apart from stepping into the mud with me. That's what Jesus does. That's what Christmas is all about. God is not ashamed to get down in the mud of my sin with me so that he might pull me out. Jesus is not a fuddy-duddy who is too afraid to get his clothes a little dirty to step down and help you. That's the message of Christmas. That God loved you so much that he was willing to take off his royal robe and get down in the dirt with you. Get down in the muck of sin with you. And to rescue you 
Not because you deserved it, but because he loved you. Why should you not be ashamed of Jesus? Because it's the shame of Jesus that is your salvation, Christian. You cannot be saved apart from Jesus being shamed for you. You can't be saved apart from Jesus taking your shame on himself. Jesus said to Peter, you can't be my disciple if I don't serve you. If you don't let me shame myself on your behalf, you cannot have any part with me. So Christian, the question you need to ask yourself today, do I believe that? Do I really believe that that's what it took to procure heaven for me, to get eternal life for me? Do I really believe that the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world is the pathetic life and criminal death of an itinerant Jewish preacher 2,000 years ago? That that single moment in world history is the most important thing that has and will ever happen. And that that moment shapes everything about my life. Do you believe that? Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. Why would you be ashamed of it? Because the gospel of God says that God demands a bloody sacrifice to cover sins and that the only solution is God's only son coming into the world as a pathetic, shameful human being dying a sinner's death on a cross 2,000 years ago outside of the city of Jerusalem and that that moment is the defining moment in the history of the world, that nothing else will trump the significance of that moment. When you go tell other people the gospel today, you have to understand that's what they're hearing from you. They're hearing from you that your invisible sky God was angry with your sins, angry with the world's sins, and the only way to atone for it was to demand a human sacrifice. And he provided the human sacrifice in the person of his son Jesus, an itinerant Jewish preacher who was crucified by Romans occupying his country, who he himself did not drive out or defeat. You understand, that's why that's such a ridiculous sounding message to the world today. And that's not new. It sounded ridiculous 2,000 years ago. That's why the Apostle Paul has to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. Because from a worldly perspective, it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. There's a reason that the prophet Muhammad, when he is writing down his so-called revelations from God in the Quran, he explicitly says that Jesus, although he's the greatest prophet, he did not die on the cross. I can show you the place in the Quran where he says it. He says, Muhammad effectively says, I know they think, I know the Christians think he died on the cross. He didn't actually die on the cross. God took him up to heaven and some other guy was mistaken for Jesus and died in his place. That's what Islam teaches. Why? Because it's so shameful. God dying on the cross? God being put to death by the hands of his own creatures? Are you kidding me? They can't handle it. That's why Paul can say in his letters, it's, it's offensive to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. Nothing about this from a worldly perspective makes any sense. And yet, Paul says, it's the power of God unto salvation. It is the message, it is the work of Jesus doing this shameful act that saves sinners and procures salvation for you. 
So Christian, don't be ashamed of him. If you have been ashamed of him, if you've been ashamed to live that reality, and you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I, I don't live life as if the defining moment of world history was the death of an itinerant Jewish preacher 2,000 years ago on a cross outside Jerusalem. I've not been living my life as if that were true. I've been saying it with my mouth, but I've not been living it out in my life. And certainly I've not been telling other people about it. That's what the Bible calls being ashamed of Jesus. If you've been ashamed of him, if you've denied him, don't lose heart. Even Peter was ashamed of Jesus. Not only on the night before his death, but on the day of his death. You remember how Peter denied him three times. Why? Because he's in such a shameful situation. But the God who loved you so much that he took your shame on himself, he will forgive anyone who comes to him through faith in Christ. You've been ashamed of Jesus. You've not wanted to tell your, your unsaved uh, neighbors about Jesus. You've not wanted to share. You've had opportunities. People have brought it up and you know, I could have said something. I know a Bible verse about that, but it'd be embarrassing. I don't want them to think less of me because I'm a real Christian who actually believes the Bible. Don't be ashamed of that. Repent from that attitude. Turn away from that. Don't be ashamed to tell others the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The only thing Paul says I want to talk about is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Don't be ashamed to follow Christ. Don't be ashamed to live your life for Jesus. It will be shameful from a worldly perspective. You have to understand that. From a worldly perspective, there's nothing honorable about being a Christian. And, and you're increasingly living in a world where you doing what you're doing today. No one's going to look favorably on you for this. No one's going to think better of you because you go to church. In fact, increasingly, they'll probably think less of you. Are you still going to do it? Hebrews 13, I'll close with this. Hebrews 13 talks about the shame of Jesus in his death. And it calls us to follow him nonetheless, just as Jesus called us to take up our cross and follow him daily. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 says that, Therefore, <clears throat> Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, when they were taking the shame of sin on themselves, you sent them out of the city, away from the people. The author of Hebrews is saying that just like that, Jesus was taken outside the camp and offered up as a sacrifice outside the gate, shamed, disgraced in the eyes of men. But he says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come. Am I looking forward to everlasting life? Am I looking to the crown that God promises to those who follow the Savior? You have to remember that just like Jesus, you don't get the crown without the cross. In our world today, you are told a message to avoid suffering as much as possible. Avoid inconvenience. Avoid discomfort. Make your life as comfortable and safe and secure as possible. Make sure that everything is as protected as you possibly can be. And God says the exact opposite to you. 
God says, I want you to lay yourself down for me, trusting that through the cross, you receive the crown. Just like Jesus, through the cross, received the crown. He took your shame on himself, Christian, and now he lives in everlasting glory. It's one of the greatest things I love about the catechism. When it speaks about the humiliation of Jesus, past tense. It's a finished work. He was shamed. He was humiliated. But now, since his resurrection, refers to it as his exaltation, his glory. And that glory continues until he comes again. That's what we celebrate here at this table this morning. We celebrate the fact that Jesus, who was once shamed for us, now lives in everlasting glory with the Father, ministering in heaven for us. And one day he will come again in the glory of his Father and he'll no more be shamed, no more be ridiculed, no more be dishonored, but every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Through his cross, he gained a crown. And that crown lasts forever and ever. And Christian, through your cross, as you take up the cross and follow Jesus, his promise to you is everlasting glory with him. All the shame of your sin removed and only honor, glory left for you forever and ever. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this good word. And Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to preach the gospel. Father, we ask your blessing on us as we have considered this truth. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do a work among us, stir up our hearts, Lord, don't let us go from this place today unchanged. But we pray that your word, uh, like a hammer, would break apart our hard hearts. That your word, like the sword of the Spirit, would pierce us and change us. Lord, that your word, which is a fire, would ignite us with passion for Jesus and a passion to embrace the shame of his cross, knowing that, Lord, through the cross there is glory ahead. Jesus, thank you for this wonderful work. Thank you for the shame you endured on our behalf. And Jesus, thank you that even today you serve us in heaven. You minister to us at this table through the preaching of the word, through prayer, in all things. You do good for us until we have been prepared for the eternal glory that we will share with you and the Father. Lord, make us fit for that day and start now. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.